All right. You know, um, I, I uh, sometimes we, 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 we often teach books. We do it expositorily. I think that's the, that, that's the best way to approach it. And sometimes I have things that are topical. But even when I do topical things, I try to be very expository in that, in the sense that we take a, a passage of Scripture and we just unpack that passage. We're true to the passage and to the context. Today is going to be a little different. We're going to jump all over the place because today, just this one time, I've never done this before, but I just feel like it's appropriate in this day and age. We're going to talk about the church and politics. Yikes! All right, this is this is such a touchy thing, and we want to we want to talk about this from a little bit of a different angle. And I wanted what got me thinking about this. A lot of this was uh, when we talked about Barnabas last week. We talked about Barnabas that Barnabas was the son of encouragement. He was an encourager. And what did he do? He gave. He was a giver. He was a peacemaker. He saw the best in people. He was willing to change from long-held beliefs. He put others first. He was a restorer. He restored people. He was involved in all of those things. And those are the things that we're supposed to be involved in. In this time, in this situation, in our culture, in our country, with the politics the way they are now, this is what we're supposed to be as followers of Jesus Christ. Encouragers, givers, peacemakers. We're supposed to see the best in people. We're supposed to be willing to change. We're supposed to be put others first in humility. We're supposed to be people who restore others. At a time when there's a lot of disagreement, we can worry about our country, but a bigger, even a bigger worry for me is, is, is the church of Jesus Christ. Now, some of this is going to be my opinion. A lot of this will be, I'll just take what Scripture says and not try to read into it, just tell us what Scripture says. But it's Scripture says, as I see it, and I'm a fallible human being, I will not recommend to you how you should vote. I do not tell people how I vote. I am painfully aware that I can be wrong. And I hope you'll love me anyways. Because I know this is a part of what can go on in these times. But I can see from many people that if their party or their candidate does not win, they will be devastated. And that's very concerning to me because that pulls into question, where are we putting our hope? Where are we finding our joy? Where are we finding our purpose? And it cannot be from a political party or a political candidate because we have to know, we have to believe because it's true, God is still on the throne. And he is working through all of this to bring about the growth of his kingdom. Whether we like the way things are going or not, God is concerned about this election only insofar as it furthers his plans for his kingdom. And we have to realize the defeat of the candidate that we may back or vote for, the defeat of that candidate may be because God is going to grow his kingdom. And if that's true, then that's a good thing. We, ha we have to keep that in mind. But as we do that, there's some things we have to remember. First of all, we have to remember who we are. This is important. This is grounding. This is foundational stuff, all right? And I want to read you a passage. It's a little bit of a long passage, so hang with me. I'm going to put it up on the screen. It's from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms. Now, first thing I want to stop and just point out, who has blessed us. You have been blessed. 
You have been blessed. You have been given things you did not deserve, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us. Next stop. God wanted you. He chose you. He chose you. I've shared it before, time being a little kid, being picked for a ball team. Back and forth and back and forth. And finally, I'm the last kid not picked. And the one captain says, I don't want him. And the other captain said, it's your turn. You have to take him. And just sitting there and realizing, I'm not wanted. That was a devastating thing, you know. I, I, sometimes I share this, people go, oh, oh, I feel so bad for you. But occasionally I have people go, come up to me and say, you know, that story tells me a lot. I understand you a lot better now. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Not being chosen for that team scarred me for life, right? God chose you. He chose you. He wants you. Let that sink in. That's a powerful thought. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Okay, this is where we're going. He's making us holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption. You are adopted. You have been brought into a new family. This is a key thought in Scripture. Scripture talks a lot about adoption. Paul talks a lot about it. It's, it's a very powerful uh, illustration. I can't go into the... But adoption back then was not the same as adoption is now. It was different, and it had more meaning and more... Uh, a lot more when he says we're adopted, it really means something. But I want you to see there, he says, in love, he predestined us for adoption. The whole basis of this is because God loves you. Through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Then he says, in him, we have redemption. You have been redeemed. That means a price was paid. That means there was a debt that was unpayable and someone else stepped in and paid that great debt. That's what's been going on there in that word. You have been, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. You've been forgiven. You have been forgiven and that forgiveness stretches on through the rest of your life. Your sins have been paid for through the redemption of Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding he made known to us. So now we have a, we, we, things are being taught to us. We know things that we didn't know before. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. Now we have this idea that there's purpose. Now I think all these words, they're piling up. They're piling up. We have purpose. This is meaning. To be put in effect when the times reach their fulfillment, now, when the times reach fulfillment, that means God's ultimate goal now. Let's look and see what he says. What's his ultimate goal? To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. To bring unity to all things. To all things. All things will operate the way they were supposed to operate. All things will be brought together under in God's way and just totally work the way it's supposed to work. We will experience this unity, and we're supposed to be working towards it now. So you see, when you look at this passage, this passage really impacts a lot of what's going on right now. He says we're blessed, we're chosen, we're holy, we're blameless, we're loved, we're adopted, we've been redeemed, we've been forgiven, grace has been lavished on us, we have this knowledge we didn't have 
before. We have a purpose we didn't have before. All for unity. What is that unity? Well, we have the perfect picture of that unity right now in the Trinity. This constant movement of love and submission and service and humility between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. That's the unity that he's talking about here. So this needs to be paramount in our church. We emphasize it in our membership class. One of the things we emphasize is the unity of the church in our membership class. All things point towards this. So anything that disrupts unity is something we need to look at very carefully. Anything that disrupts unity that's not at the core of biblical belief, then it's wrong. Now, when I say core of biblical belief, what I mean is there's certain things that biblically for us as a church, for me as a person, they're non-negotiables. The Trinity, the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ, the spiritual lostness of the human race, the substitutionary atonement and bodily resurrection of Christ, the salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, the physical return of Christ, the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. These are things that are they're like core beliefs. He's coming back. He, this is who He is. And these are things that, yes, if someone takes a stance that is very directly opposite of what I believe, that I, I say, look, I, I, we can't fellowship in this way. I still love you and I'll still talk to you, but, but there's, a, there's a break here because of that. But when we get past those core beliefs, anything that disrupts unity becomes highly suspect. We have to be very careful. Because these core beliefs, they, they, they're the th and the things that flow from them, that's where we draw the line. There are, others, there are other beliefs that people may have from the Word of God that are deeply held beliefs. But they're not what I would call core beliefs. And so we, we have to be careful as we deal with those different things. We have to be careful. This is the problem that has afflicted, afflicted the church for 2,000 years, is that the church exists within a culture, and that culture begins to invade the church and begins to shape the way people look at things. It begins to shape the way people look at the Word of God, the way people behave. And it's cultural, and that's wrong. Right? It's wrong to allow culture to tell us what is and what is right and what is wrong. That's called syncretism, and it's a sin. And so, who are we? This is something we have to really think about. Paul says... Um, Paul says we're ambassadors for Christ. There's a verse he says their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. That's what's most important. Our citizenship is in heaven. We cannot allow our mind to be dominated by earthly things. And in politics, it's very easy to be swept up by earthly things. So who are we? We're reconcilers like Barnabas. He brought in people who were outside the faith that people thought were too lost. He brought in the Apostle Paul that no one wanted to even talk to. He brought him in. He reconciled. Who are we? The Bible tells us we need to be truth tellers. We need to be people who place a high, high degree, a high priority on the truth. The truth of the Word of God and then truth as it exists in this world. We need to be peacemakers, not dividers. And that list goes on and on. We could spend a long time talking about who are we. But the second thing we need to remember is how are we to live, biblically speaking? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. When Jesus was asked what's the most important thing in the whole Bible, this is what he said. 
So when we start to think about what's most important to us, this is where we need to start. The whole Bible, he says, hangs on these verses. The whole Bible builds up off of these verses. This is the foundation. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. That affects our nation at this time, especially in the political realm. Because there's not a lot of that going on. And as followers of Christ, we need to be modeling that. Jesus told them, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. In a church, this is supposed to be the number one thing people see. Look at those people. Look how they love each other. They're so different. They come from all backgrounds, all walks of life. But look how they love each other. This is how Christians are recognized. Their love for God, their love for their neighbor, their love for each other. And if our political position hampers our love for other people, especially other Christians, then we are neglecting what Jesus says is the most important thing. And that's a pretty powerful indictment. We are to live keeping the most important thing in the forefront so that even with people we strongly disagree with, our first concern is, are we loving them? Not, am I showing them how wrong they are? Not, can I convince them of my, from, to my point of view? Not those things. Our first thing is, are, are we loving them? Now, the question then says, if that's the way things are supposed to be, do we see this illustrated? Do we see this in the Gospels? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Two of Jesus' disciples came from the opposite polar extremes, politically speaking. Way more opposite than we dream of in ours. One is Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were the people who were uh, uh, advocating for a violent overthrow of Roman rule. Zealots were the original, in a sense, terrorists. Because if, especially in certain parts of, of uh, the Galilee and different places where the zealots were, were strong, if you were a Roman or a Roman sympathizer and you were walking alone, your life was in danger because that's what they looked for. You know, we talk about in certain parts of the world, roadside bombs, IEDs, ambushes like that. This is what they did. They waited along well-known paths. And if they someone someone who was a Roman or a Roman sympathizer, they killed them. That's what the zealots were. Matthew, the tax collector. Tax collections in those days were sent out, given out to the highest bidder for a certain area, and they always picked someone who was local because they knew the locality and they were better at collecting the taxes. So what would happen? They would take someone who was, the Romans would get someone who was a Jew who was willing to turn in other Jews for not paying their taxes, who was willing to collect exorbitant taxes from Jews, his people. They were considered the lowest of the lows. In fact, if you read sometimes in Scripture, you'll see it talks about these people. They, they say, well, these people are sinners and tax collectors. They're worse than sinners. They were traitors. They turned on their countrymen. Some of them, you know, were sent to jail. Some of them were sent away to prison because of non-payment of taxes, because they were turned in by one of their countrymen to a foreign occupier. So tax collectors were the most hated. When tax collectors collected taxes, they always had a military escort so they wouldn't be killed. And Jesus said, Simon, follow me. And Jesus said, Matthew, follow me. 
And I can imagine, just thinking, Jesus, on road trips, hey, you two guys are rooming together. And they'd be like, <laughs> right? Because we're not told that they changed their political beliefs, but we're told that they became followers of Jesus Christ. They followed the way. This is the way. I love that saying. I love that saying. I'm so excited about Mandalorian. Um, they followed the way. They became people who put something above their political beliefs. And it, Jesus dominated their lives instead of politics. So we see that with them. Do we see it in the early church? Yes, we do. Here's the thing as we think about the early church and our church now. Christian unity is not achieved by getting everyone in your church to agree with each other on politics. That is not Christian unity. That would be actually hazardous. Unity is achieved by getting everyone to agree on living for God and loving others. That's where unity comes from. There's a second century Greek philosopher, Aristides, uh, who about 130 AD wrote a letter to Hadrian, the, uh, the Caesar at the time. And he's talking about the early Christians and he said, they loved one another. He wrote about how they conducted themselves in their daily activities. They didn't cheat people. They didn't lie. They didn't, they, they didn't always look for the easy way out. They cared deeply for others. They cared deeply for others, even people who were not part of their group. In his letter, he marvels at the example that these Christians set. And we want people to say this. You know, we think about this. We want people to say, wow, these people love each other across the political divides. I've never seen anything like that. And unfortunately, Christians can become known for strident tones and unloving attitudes. One uh, couple of uh, theologians are writing about what they see as the balkanization of the church. Balkanization is looking at the Balkans, that part of Europe that has been divided up into tiny little countries where each country, they, every, everybody feel we're all the same people, we all believe the same, we all, and it's created all these little countries now that are angry at each other and don't like each other. And, and they're worried, this is what's happening to the church. We're becoming balkanized. We, we're becoming all just going in our little groups. And, and, and you can see this. You can see it in your own life. Do you want to, because it's natural, it's human, you want to just hang out with the people that agree with you. It's so much easier to hang out with the people who agree with me. It, and it makes me feel better because they all repeat the things that I believe. And it's just one loop, one little sounding board of people saying the same thing. And he's saying, this is not good for us. We need people who disagree with us. We need this in our lives. And so this is how the disciples were. This is how the early church was. This is how we're supposed to be. So some practical ideas. Just some practical thoughts. In 1 John 1.4, uh, no, 1 John chapter 4, Jesus, uh, John is telling them, that if you're not loving, you're not following God. He says, if you're not loving, you're not following God. This is not of God. So if you cannot converse with someone in person or online in a loving manner, you're not following God. And that's an important thing for us to think about. Because our in-person behavior and our online behavior has to align with Scripture. It is not just that this thing I'm talking about, not just that it's true, 
It's does it accomplish something that honors and glorifies God? Or are you just trying to prove your point so you can be right? And we all see that online, right? We all see that. We've all met someone who, who, who comes into a room, says something to somebody, utterly destroys them, and then just says, what? It's just the truth. But it's not the truth in love. And that's what Jesus is talking about. This is what John is talking about in this passage. And so I take you back to Proverbs chapter 6. I, I go here sometimes because it's just important for me to remind myself that there are six things the Lord hates, no seven that are detestable to Him. Now this is an important thing. God tells us a lot of things that He loves. But if God takes the time to say, these are the things I hate, we need to pay attention. Because these are the things that should not be associated with us as followers of Jesus Christ. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. So God says, here's seven things I hate. A lot of theologians believe these things are the, the most important is the seventh. It, it tops off the everything. You know, it's just a kind of way that Hebrew, Hebrew poetry can be it sometimes. But he first says haughty eyes, and this is that whole idea of pride, just of being prideful. You know, it's not enough. You may be right. But if then you're like, yeah, I'm right. Watch me nail this dude. Now it's moved over into pride, and God goes, yeah, I hate that. I don't care if you're right. I hate that. A lying tongue, a person who cannot be trusted to tell the truth. Hands that shed innocent blood, that's murder or forms of murder. A heart that devises wicked schemes. What is that? Uh, I illustrated this one time. I always talk about driving. I don't know why I always talk about driving. But I'm just some guy just driving like a maniac, going down 64, and he's cutting. You know, he's in a super big hurry. You've seen those people. Maybe you are one of those people. I have been in the past, but I've grown past it, I'm sure. Um, and and they just, they're just cutting, cutting, cutting. And you're going, dude, in about 20 minutes, you're going to gain like half a mile in all this traffic. But you're going to endanger like 50 people. And I remember just a little thought. Man, I just, a little bit, I just love to go by him, see his car punked into a tree. God, I don't want him hurt, you know, maybe a broken leg, but I don't want him real bad hurt. But that would show him, show him what an idiot he is, right? What is that? That is a heart devising wicked schemes, hoping something bad happens to somebody wishing for something you're not doing it and you see we all we all justify those things well i'm not gonna do it i'm not gonna force him off the road and make him hit a tree i'm not i'm just thinking about it yeah but that's a heart that is going in that direction and if you do that enough you begin to act out things and so he says i hate that because god hates it why because he knows where it leads So heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil. Now this is the extension of that. That is someone who goes towards evil. Maybe doesn't participate, just loves it. A false witness who pours out lies. Okay, this is slander. This is a person who, can't, who tells things about other people. And then the seventh is a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Someone who brings division in a community of people, in a community of believers. God says, I 
hate that. Think about that for a second. That is something, you know, slander. Because it's interesting to me, he says there's seven things, and three of them are sins of the mouth and have to do with falsehoods. Although creating division doesn't necessarily mean it's a falsehood, it could be the truth. It could be shared in the form of a prayer request. We all need to pray for so-and-so. I don't know if you guys have heard, but... And then division is created. So we have to be very careful because God says, I hate that. We tend to, we look at hands that shed innocent blood. That's murder. Oh, who's, who's for it? Nobody's. We all agree on that. But when we start talking about the things that are so easy to slip out of our mouths, God says, I hate that. Interestingly, I hate that just as much as I hate murder. That's pretty powerful. That rearranges priorities for us. Now, hands that shed innocent blood, that can involve a lot of things. And I'll say, I mean, I, I and you know, this is where it, now it's me. This is me. I'm pro-life. But you know what this means? Hands that shed innocent blood. It means I can't pick and choose that some lives are more important than others. If I'm going to be a biblical about it. Now, I tend to lean into, I tend to, to bend towards the idea of who's helpless in this situation. Helplessness is a very important thing to me. So I'm pro I'm pro whole life. I'm pro life from conception to the grave. I'm pro fetus life. I'm pro child life. Pro American child. Pro Dominican child. Pro Nigerian child. Pro Russian child. Pro Japanese. I'm pro child. And we have to be careful. I'm, I, 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 for me personally, I'm, I'm pro-immigrant immigrant life. I'm pro-foreigner life. Now, that's not saying what our immigration policy should be, but it's this. It says the Bible talks about how we treat immigrants and foreigners. It talks very specifically about how we treat immigrants and foreigners, and we should pay attention to it. We, should be, we as Christians should be the ones leading the way in that. I'm pro-elderly. I'm more pro-elderly now than I was 10 years ago. I'm getting more and more. But let me say this, and this is kind of sobering to me. Not a long time ago, Hurricane Irma swept through Florida, and a couple of nursing homes were devastated. And a lot of people lost their lives, and there were pictures of elderly people sitting in wheelchair with water up to their waist for days. And everybody went crazy. And everybody said, this is unbelievable. This is terrible, the way we're treating old people. And I don't know of anyone who disagrees with me when I say the way we warehouse old people is anti-life. But you know what? And I, and I don't want to hurt people's feelings, but I, then the nursing home industry moved in when everybody was calling for changes. And a lot of money got splashed around on both sides of the table. And nothing has been done. The next hurricane will do the same thing in Florida with the same circumstances. Why? Why? Because we're not pro-elderly. We need to be. These things need to be important to Christians. They need to cross all political divides. Because that's where I say, I'm, I lean into where there's the situation of helplessness. 
from a fetus to an elderly person, to people who don't have resources, whatever it is, there's, there's a helplessness. And so I am anti-things that rob people of life. Now, I don't think that sounds very divisive, but I don't know. I may get some emails, and if that's fine. I don't mind. I love getting feedback. I really do. Even when it's negative, I really do. I mean that. But we have these, we have these things God says He hates. We need to take a stand as Christians. And the things like lying and slandering and creating conflict are things that we don't seem to take very seriously. God hates division. God hates mockery. God hates belittling. God hates insulting. He hates it. We don't seem to have a big problem with it. The other day I was reading something written by a guy that's a fundraiser for one of our political parties. Not going to say which, doesn't matter because it applies to both. And he said this, nothing divides like fear. And then he said, fear is how we raise money. That's how we get money. We create fear. And what do we fear? Well, we fear loss. We fear the loss of something, a loss, a, a loss of something we, we think is dear. We fear uh, losing control. We fear losing opportunity. There's a lot of things we fear, but here's the key. Fear divides us. Fear divides us. And Christians, of all people, are supposed to be the ones that are fearless. Fearless. About nine or ten years ago, um, I had open heart surgery. And I remember thinking, getting up in front of this church and saying, the best thing that could happen to me is to die on the operating table. That's the best thing. Now, I'm not praying for it. But I know, biblically speaking, that's the best thing. that I'd be with Jesus. So I want to be fearless. I want to be fearless. I'm not always fearless. I'll admit that. But as Christians, we're supposed to be the ones that fear does not divide us because it has no power over us. So if we're going to talk practically, let me just throw a few things out there. This is not by any means an exhaustive list, but some things to come. Think about, number one, be careful with social media. It's deadly. It is deadly. This is one of the big ways, maybe the primary way that lies are spread in our, in our culture on both sides, on both sides. And, and I have seen plenty. I've seen plenty. I'll get, here we go. Ready? This, just both sides. There was something going out that Ilian Omar, the, the uh, representative, Muslim representative from Detroit, had submitted a bill to remove all mention of God and Christianity from the Constitution. That's a lie. And it spread wildly. Millions of hits. It's a lie. You may disagree with her politically, but to spread a lie is to sin. One went out. It's the one that's going, it's big right now. Millions of hits. That Donald Trump owes millions of dollars to the Russians. That's a lie. He owes millions of dollars, but it's not to the Russians. And so that's, a, and we know it's not like, oh, well, it could be. No, we know at this point that almost all of it is, is, is held by Germany. So it's not to the Russians. And that plays into a, a train of thought that people want to emphasize, and it's a lie. Black Lives Matter's protesters invaded a church. That was a lie. It was a lie. 
and it got tens of millions of hits. And it turns out it was all a setup and it was all manipulation of, of video. So we have to be very careful. Now, all of this was on social media. Now, you may, have, you may say, oh, I saw that one, but I didn't see that one. You know why? Because Facebook gives you what they think you'll agree with. They feed you what they think will keep you going, yes, I believe that. Yes, I believe that. They give you what they think you want to see. Those three things I just mentioned, I got all three of them from Christians. They're lies. And what's the purpose behind those three things? Fear and division. Fear and division. And see, it doesn't matter what you think of Ilian Omar. It doesn't matter what you think of Donald Trump. It doesn't matter what you think. Any of those things, it's that they're lies. And if we pass them on, we are complicit as followers of Jesus Christ. And think about this for a second. When we pass them on, God says, I hate that. I hate that that you did that. I hate that. That's what my son died for. I hate it. I talked to someone, one of the people that passed one of these on to me, and I said, that's a lie. It's not true. And they said, well, it sounded true. And then they said, how am I supposed to know? How am I supposed to know about it? And my response is, if you don't know for sure, don't post it. Even if it sounds true, don't post it. We have to be very careful because Facebook figures out what you read and they send you more of it and they will not send you anything they think might go against what you like to read. They don't do that. That's the way those algorithms work. Okay, so be careful with social media. It's just, man, just be careful. There's a lot of lies, not just political lies. There's just a lot of lies. You know, you see people going, my life is so great. I'm so happy. Da, da, da. Like, that's a lie. <laughs> Your life is great right this moment. But in a week, you're going to be crying. Okay? You tend not to post that as much on Facebook, right? Okay. So I stop. I just need to stop. I'm an old man going on about Facebook. <laughs> right? Okay, remember, professional political talkers and opinion people only want ratings. These personalities get rich by, by instilling fear and paranoia in their listeners. If we give our favorite political ideologues more time than we give Jesus, we're following the wrong master. It is their livelihood. So they commonly fudge the facts. They bend them to fit their viewpoint. Because it's about them. It's about them getting money, and they get money from clicks and hits and views and, 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 and TV ratings and all of that stuff. And you have to be very careful because that's the way we are. That, that we're like that. It's all about me. That's the way we behave so much of the time. That's our default. That's our sin nature. It's all about me. We have to be very careful because things are made, everything in our culture is about me, me, me. Advertisements are about me, me, me. You know, all different things. Games, anything we play. I like to play games. I was playing Among Us the other day. And uh, so there are some people here that think old people don't play Among Us. AOC and me getting out the boat, right? So 
So I'm playing and someone and suddenly someone's died and I'm like, don't care, finish my tasks, you know. I could care. That's just the way we are. It's all about me. And and we've got to understand that's the way the world works. Next one. This doesn't even need explanation. Scripture tells us to pray for our leaders. Scripture tells us to pray for our leaders. We need to do that. We need to do that. Next one. Don't get paranoid. It is so easy to do. Don't get paranoid. God's got this. He's got this. He has a plan. He is creating something that's incredible. And all of this is wrapped up in it. We have to. I mean, the old adage, be careful what you wish for, is always something we need to think about. Because on so many of the things that we think are so important, there's a flip side to them that we have never thought of or seen. Fifth one. This is probably not the most important election in the history of our nation. All right? No, I got to say it's not. The most important election in the history of our nation was Abraham Lincoln was elected president because before that we thought it was okay to own people, right? So that's the most important election in the history of, of our nation. But you know what? You start looking at the late 20s and the 30s and what was going on then, it was horrific. And those elections were brutal. Much, I think, in many ways worse than what we saw. Um, Chuck Colson uh, wrote a book about his time in the Nixon administration, and at the beginning of the administration, he was saying among the inner court, the inner circle, they really believed that the nation was about to descend into civil war, and so they decided among themselves, even if it meant breaking the law, anything was okay to get their goals, get their goals. Anything was okay. The ends justified the means. And he was saying, I regret that every day of my life that I was willing to break the law for what I thought was the sake of my country, and I was wrong. We're in difficult times. There are tr tremendous changes going on. But we face worse. I think, I think maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this will be the most important election in the history of our nation. You know what? It doesn't. It's still God's, God's the one who puts people up and pulls people down. God's the one who uses our culture to grow his kingdom. All right? Six, strive to keep the fellowship and unity of the church. All right? This mindset. We can disagree, but our fellowship and our friendship should in no, ways be, no way be jeopardized because this is what the church is all about. People who formerly hated each other uniting in Jesus Christ. This is what he talks about when he says... Um, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. That's in Colossians. Then in, in Galatians he says, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This broke down all the walls that separated people. All of them here. Class, social status, racial, uh, um, um, just political, Everything you can think of, he says, that's been broken down. And we have this local church, this local church now, where people who decide to love each other, they decide to, to beat their swords into plowshares, they decide to be totally different. 
so that when you come to church and maybe there's somebody who gets on their political hobby horse, you go, okay, this is not going to kill me. This is okay. When you come to church and maybe there's a person or a couple or whatever that, that believes significantly than you believe on a lot of things, you can say, you know what, though? We're brothers and sisters in Christ. This is not going to kill me. This is okay. All the boundaries are broken down. We're all one in Christ. And if we're electing, if we're electing, if we're erecting political boundaries that keep us from fellowshipping with other Christians, we're wrong. We're wrong. Final one, be willing to be wrong. Be willing to change. We saw that with Peter when God pushed him towards eating unclean food. That was something he had believed in all his life. And God's saying, change it. What a difficult thing to do. But he did finally. He struggled with it later and kind of came, but he finally, he did. Why? Because his relationship with Jesus Christ was more than all those other things. For the Jews concerning the Gentiles, this was a tremendous shift in their lives to accept Gentiles in, for, for Paul to tell them, you're equal, you're one in Christ, you're equal. So we need to be willing to be wrong. We need to be willing to change. You know, when I said I really, I welcome emails or phone calls or texts, people who disagree with me, I really mean that. I really mean that. I've learned a lot from people who disagreed with me very strongly. I don't always agree with them, but I learned a lot about their viewpoint and where they're coming from and how I may have made things worse unwittingly. I also learned sometimes that I was just wrong. I mean, that goes without saying that's normal. But I, I'm learning now when people disagree with me not to be defensive because that's my first thing, you know. They start saying, what you said Sunday was totally wrong. I'm like, well, yeah, <laughs> well, you know, let's drop it right now. No, I learned, okay, tell me. What did I say? What did I do? Because I have said things that are wrong. I have hurt people. I'm acutely aware of that. I hate that. And so now I want to tell people, tell me. I will listen. That's a great way to approach things. Just saying to people, if you disagree with them, tell me. I will listen. I'm not going to interrupt you. I'm not going to bark at you. I'm not going to give you a hard time. Tell me and I will listen. And be willing to listen. Because in this day and age, we serve the King of kings. We serve the Lord of lords. And He is not worried. Jesus is not in heaven right now going, oh man, oh man, look how many people voted early. This is going to be trouble. You know? No. He's not. He's not worried. He knows what He's doing. And He said, I want you to go out and I want you to love people. And I want you to love people who are not like you. And I want you to love people who don't believe like you or look like you or talk like you or smell like you, or act like you. Love them. And it will transform this world. It still works. It worked 2,000 years ago, and it still works. This is what we're called to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you where it points us. We thank you for this salvation that is full and free, and that we are able to know the King of kings and the Lord of lords.
we are able to have fellowship with you in the Trinity. Lord, that we have now this eternal life that is right now, right here on this earth, and will slide right into eternity as we live with you. Father, help us, help us to be your ambassadors who lead with love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for uh, joining us online. Thanks for coming here this morning to everyone that is here. We appreciate that. I encourage you as you go out to be praying for opportunities to be the person who shows love to someone who has not seen it or someone who's not seen it lately or someone who's not experienced that much in their life. Be that person. Be willing to be that person and then just allow God to begin to point people out to you. Go love that person. Be ready to be rejected, but it doesn't change the fact that you tried to love, which is obedience to Christ. Thanks for coming. God bless you, and you are dismissed.